Mary, well, I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you have your Bibles, take them out, turn them open to Exodus chapter 20, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. If you're not familiar with the Bible, don't sweat it. Know that every Bible comes with a table of contents to help you navigate this big book with lots of pages and lots of stuff in it. Uh, so find your way to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to be camping out over in kind of a bird's eye view for the next uh, few moments. As you know, this summer we're taking some time to uh, study different aspects of God's character or his attributes, and so each week we've been looking at some facet or some aspect of who God is and what God is like, and it's been a a great journey this summer, and we've got a few more weeks to go in this series, but uh, one of the things I'm most excited about in this series is that there are artists all throughout our faith family here in Fremont as well as in North Seattle and in West Seattle who are contributing uh, pieces of art uh, that they've put together using a a variety of mediums to uh, just kind of in response to their meditation and to their thinking about different attributes of God. And so tonight's piece was given to us by Carissa Bangs, and it's titled The Love of God, and it'll be flashing up on the screen here. And it's a wonderful piece, the hard copy of which won't be with us until next week. And so I would encourage you next week uh, to swing by uh, the hanging of that painting up in the back, along with the other pieces that have been uh, growing over the course of the summer, and and get a closer look at what she has put together to, to really just express her response and her artistic imagination of the love of God in her life, specifically as it shows up in the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, with that said, I know that when you hear me say that today we're going to talk about the love of God, but yet we're reading the Ten Commandments, you might think that there's a huge disconnect between those, those two dynamics. Like, there's a, there's a tension in our lives, and I think in our culture, in a lot of ways, that, that wants to put a, a wedge between the law of God and the love of God, somehow thinking that God's law and God's love are incompatible, or that God's law and the God's love uh, just can't harmonize in any discernible way. But I want to show you that the love of God, uh, the law of God, is a remarkable expression of God's love towards us. But before we dive into that, let me voice one more prayer for us, and then we will, we will go in that direction. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, would you open up our eyes to see beauty therein? I pray that you would stir our hearts to receive and to respond to that which you have for us in the scriptures tonight. God, we believe your word is living and active, that your word is timely and truthful and transformative, and we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts and in our lives ultimately to drive us to your love for us in Jesus. God, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, a few years ago, there was a man by the name of A.J. Jacobs who decided he, he wanted to try to follow every command he could find in the Bible. And so he combed through the scriptures and he made note of every single command and devoted his life for an entire year of trying to carry that command and live out his obedience to God's word and to God's law. And we're not just talking about the familiar popular ones like the Ten Commandments or the one like love your neighbor. We're talking about the obscure ones that may be a little bit more culturally restricted and culturally confined. We're, we're talking about a guy who didn't shave for a year and so he grew this huge Duck Dynasty beard out on his face. And, and we're talking about a guy who learned to play a ten-string harp because that was what he saw going down in the Old Testament We're talking about a guy who um, would not wear clothes mixed with fibers. So cotton and polyester were off limits because he saw that somewhere in the Old Testament and said, well, I got to do that. So he became very inconvenient in his shopping, trying to find clothes that weren't mixed with fibers in our culture. Uh, (laughs) 
He also refused to shake hands with women that he believed to be ceremonially unclean. And so for a year, he would just kind of keep his distance from ladies, and, and you can think about that on your own. Uh, but my personal favorite, my personal favorite was that this guy would put a lot of pebbles in his pocket. And he'd walk around with pebbles in his pocket, and every time he saw a couple that he believed to be adulterous, he would take a pebble and start pelting them as his way of stoning them for their sin and their adultery. And so this was this guy's attempt to carry out God's law to a T. And he would come home every day, and he would journal about his experience. And it all, all of his entries went into a book that you can get right now titled The Year of Living Biblically. And it's subtitled, one man's humble attempt to follow the Bible as literally as possible. One man's humble attempt to follow the Bible as literally as possible. I believe ABC has picked up on this book, and they're actually trying to make a sitcom out of this guy's experience uh, with this experiment. But you consider that. One man's humble attempt to follow the Bible as literally as possible. There's a question I'm often asked when people learn that I'm a pastor here in this city, and it always concerns the Bible. And people ask me all the time, so how do you guys read the Bible at your church? And they only give me two options, which is kind of frustrating. They say, do you read the Bible literally or do you read the Bible figuratively? And it's a, it's a really unfortunate categorization because the answer to that question is yes. I read the Bible literally and figuratively. There are passages in the Bible that I read literally. I believe Jesus literally lived. I believe he literally died. I believe he literally rose from the grave. I believe the Paul, that Paul and his pals literally traveled the known world planting churches after Jesus resurrected and ascended to return to the right hand of the Father. I believe there's a lot in the Bible that we should read literally, but there's also passages in the Bible that should be read figuratively. And I believe deep down inside, every one of you would agree with me, and part of that because some of you are familiar with the Bible and you're here right now and you have both your eyes. Uh, because perhaps you've come across Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, I believe, or 6, where he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Uh, the fact that everybody has their eyes right now tells me that you're all reading the Bible figuratively like me. I don't think Jesus literally meant for us to take a spoon and gouge out our eye to deal with sin that way. That's not how we read that passage, and that's not how we read lots of passages in the Bible. Because lots of passages in the Bible are metaphorical, they're figurative, they're poetic, and we want to respect those aspects of God's written scriptures. So essentially what that boils down to, when people ask me the question, do you read the Bible literally or figuratively, I always say yes, uh, both, uh, but what matters most to me is that I read the Bible seriously. The Bible's not a simplistic book, and it shouldn't be treated simplistically. And if you take one of those, literal or figurative, and you apply that as your own paradigm for your only paradigm for reading the Bible, then you are approaching the Bible simplistically, and you're not going to understand the Bible. The Bible's not going to lead you to where the Bible's intended to lead you if you're reading it simplistically. The Bible's a serious book that should be read and studied seriously. That means we respect nuance. That means we respect complexity. That means we engage the Bible with our minds and our hearts in light of everything we know to be true about who Jesus is and what the Spirit is kicking up in our lives. So we want to read the Bible seriously. And if there's any passage, if there's any portion in the Bible that should not be treated simplistically, I think it's the passages dealing with God's law. I think passages dealing with God's rules or God's commands, that's, that's an area of the Bible that we can't treat simplistically. 
But there is a tendency in our lives and even in our culture to want to treat this portion of the Bible simplistically when it comes to God's law, God's rules, and how his law and rules relate to our lives. You see, a simplistic approach to God's law, really, they basically say all or nothing. And so you get kind of two camps. There are some who say, well, if you're going to obey anything in the Bible, then you've got to obey everything in the Bible. That's the all crowd. But then you also have kind of a nothing crowd that says things like, well, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. And so they just kind of dismiss all of God's commands as being relevant for them. All of God's commands of having any practical impact on how they go about their lives in this life. And so they have a nothing crowd on one hand, but then you have an all crowd on the other. And the all crowd is really the crowd that kind of blasts Christians for being hypocritical. You've probably come across this conversation where, where they say, well, you Christians, you guys talk about sexual ethics, but yet you're wearing clothes mixed with fiber. Like, what's up with that? It shouldn't be all or nothing. And that's, again, a simplistic approach to a very nuanced and complex uh, book that we're dealing with. So when it comes to the law, we want to deal with the law seriously. We want to treat it as God intended for us to treat it, recognizing that, yes, there is complexity in the Bible, and we don't want to approach this or any other passage with a simplistic attitude or a simplistic mentality. You see, if you approach the law of God simplistically, you're going to turn into one of two things you don't want to become. On one hand, you're going to become a legalist, a lot like the Pharisees. The Pharisees approached the Old Testament in, some, in the first century, at least, simplistically. They had an all, they had an all, they were kind of on the all side of the all or nothing equation. And Jesus constantly blasted them for it, constantly said, you guys are missing the point. You guys are elevating the letter of the law above the spirit of the law. They were missing the essence of what God intended for his law to accomplish in the lives of his people. In many ways, the Pharisees would pit God's law against God's love. But when Jesus steps onto the scene, he comes in and he corrects all of that. And he says, look, don't pit God's law against his love, recognizing the relationship, recognize the relationship between his law for us and the love that he has, the love that he wants to give to us. And so we want to consider that so that we don't put a wedge between God's law and God's love, but we allow the law to do for us what it was, what God intended the law to do for us generally and primarily. And so when you think about that, you step into the book of Exodus, and some of you might not be familiar with the book of Exodus, and if that's the case, let me kind of give you a little context for this book. This book begins with the people of God, that is the Israelites, in slavery in Egypt. Well, then God met a guy by the name of Moses at the burning bush, and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, I want you to confront the Pharaoh, a land that he was familiar with because he grew up as an Egyptian, but then God intervened in his life and said, now you're going to the Pharaoh, and I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. So after a long conversation, Moses finally gave in. He said, sure thing. And he sent Moses in to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. After this redemption that occurred, God then began to lead his people through the wilderness, which took about 40 years. 40 years of wandering through the wilderness before they came to the Mount, what's called Mount Sinai, or uh, which was right on the threshold of the promised land that God wanted to give to the people of Israel. But just before they would go into the promised land, and immediately after they exited the wilderness, God met with them at Mount Sinai, and he gave Israel his law. He said, I'm going to give you my law so that you can know who I want you to be in the world. Because I want to set your quality of life apart from all the nations. Not to exclude the nations, but to actually attract the nations. 
The people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the nations. Their way of life was supposed to be attractive to the people who were watching them and observing them. Of course, as they kind of fumbled and bumbled their way through it, people weren't attracted because they weren't giving their lives in faith and in trust to what God had told them God would tell them to do here in Exodus chapter 20. And so that sets up this moment where God is meeting with Moses and the Israelites are hanging out at the mountain and God speaks this word. He gives this law to his people. And notice the first thing that God says. It's very important if you go, when you start thinking about the law of God and how it relates to the love of God, you have to understand verse 2. Verse 2, God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. In other words... God gave his law to a people who were already redeemed. You have to let that sink into your mind, and you have to let that sink into your heart. God did not say, okay, Moses, you're going to Egypt to get my people. Here are the Ten Commandments. I want you to bring them in, hold them up for all the people, and say, if you want out, you've got to obey these. He did not say, if you, if you can really subscribe to these rules, if you can obey these commands, then you can get out of your slavery. You can get out of your bondage. You can get out of Egypt. That's not the order. It's never the order. God gave his law to a people who were already redeemed. In other words, grace always precedes obedience. Grace always precedes law. But that's not what our heart wants to believe. See, we live in a culture in a day where we want, our hearts want to believe that our obedience is what determines our relationship or our acceptance with God. And so we're often putting law first, saying, okay, well, if God's going to love me, if he's going to treat me well, if he's going to accept me, then I've got to obey him perfectly. I've got to do what he says to do and not do the things he doesn't tell me to do or he tells me not to do, but I seem to be fumbling and bumbling my way through that so I can't possibly be accepted by the creator of the universe. But if that's your thinking, if that's your process, you're not hearing, you're not allowing the law of God to serve you in the way that it's designed to serve you. God gave his law to a people already redeemed. Israel's acceptance with God was not dependent ultimately upon their obedience to the law. And your acceptance with God is not dependent upon your obedience to the law either. It's dependent upon grace. It's dependent on the fact that God is far better to us than we've ever imagined. He does things for us before we can even realize what all he's done for us to bring us into relationship with himself. The law law is given to a people already redeemed. You have to let that sink into your heart. Get that order straight. But not only is the law given to a people already redeemed, the law is intended for Israel not to restrict their freedom, but actually to make freedom possible. You see, one of the reasons why we kind of push back against the law of God and we think that it's uh, not good for us is because we think law, rules, commands are restrictive. We think they're designed to suffocate our joy, to suffocate our pleasure, to suffocate our freedom. But I want you to see in light of this passage that the law wasn't given to restrict Israel's freedom. It was actually given to make freedom possible. There's a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a couple of books later in the Bible, where God is uh, clarifying this for his people. And listen to how the passage reads. When your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? What's the meaning of the law? Tell him this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his household. 
But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. In other words, God looked at his people being oppressed in Egypt and said, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are standing in, in between my people and my presence. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to remove that obstacle. And God commits himself with a strong hand in the book of Exodus to say, anything that stands between my and my people, I'm going to get rid of. And you take that mentality and you go to the gospel and God says the same thing in Jesus. He looks at our lives being oppressed by sin, being oppressed by Satan, being oppressed by the fear of death. And he says to us, look, I'm going to get rid of anything that stands between your, your, pres- your life and my presence, between my people enjoying my presence, whatever it is, I'm going to get rid of it. And that's exactly what he does at the cross. He says, I'm removing sin, I'm removing Satan, I'm removing death through the cross of Christ, because I'm going to deal with anything that stands between my people and my presence. He's gracious and he's good like that. But then it goes on. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for out of for our prosperity always and for our preservation. In other words, the law was given to the people of Israel for their good so they could flourish in the land, so that they would be preserved and prosperous there. And then it goes on. As it is today, righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So he gave the law to the people of Israel not because he wanted to restrict their freedom, but because he wanted to make it possible. This is where the movies get it wrong. You know, the book of Exodus is a popular book for artists to want to imagine and to kind of kick up on the, on the big screen for us to see and to, and to be entertained by these various movies. But they always get this aspect of, who, what, of the Exodus story wrong. If you're familiar with the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, you know that God, Moses confronts Pharaoh and he does what God tells him to do. He wants, he's there to deliver the Israelites. And when he steps up to Pharaoh, he says this. He says, uh, let my people go. And then he stops. He says, let my people go, period. And that's where the movie ends. And the question from the audience is then, okay, go where and do what? Well, from our culture's perspective, the answer to that is to go be free. Because we live in a world that wants to define freedom as the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, to go wherever you want. It's a borderless world. That's how we understand freedom. There's no borders. There's no boundaries. There's no rules. There's no restrictions. That's our understanding of freedom. But what did God tell Moses in Exodus chapter 3? He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, yes, let my people go. But he doesn't put a period. It's let my people go, comma, so that they might come worship me. In other words, he wants to redeem his people from Egypt so they might enjoy his presence in the promised land. We live in a culture that says freedom is the ability to do whatever you want, go wherever you want, do whatever you want. But God defines freedom as the ability to do what you were designed to do. That's what freedom is. And the reality is every human heart was created to worship God, to enjoy God, to relate with God, to fellowship with God, commune with God. That's why we were created. That's how we've been designed. And we're only as free as we are faithful to that intention, faithful to that design. My favorite way to illustrate this, I've probably shared this with some of you before, is the time I bought my daughter Delaney a fish. And this was her first stab at being a responsible little, little person where she had to feed the fish and clean the tank and do all those things. Well, I walked into her room one day and I had these thoughts on my mind and I wanted to try to get her to understand these dynamics. And so I asked her, I said, Delaney, what would happen if I took your fish out of the aquarium, out of its tank, and I just kind of dropped it here on the open floor? 
And she looked at me, and her eyes got wide, and she kind of got scared. I don't know if she thought I was actually going to do it, but she started freaking out. And she says, well, my fish would die. My fish can't, can't go there. It, it needs water. And I said, that's right, Delaney. Your fish needs water. Why? She said, well, it's a fish, and fish are made for water. And I said, but Delaney, don't you think they'd be a lot, he'd, your fish would be a lot freer outside the tank? I mean, he wouldn't be confined to that limited space. He'd have all this space in the open floor. And she looked up and said, no, if he, if he gets out of his tank, he's going to die. And I said, that's right, Delaney. I said, Delaney, a fish is only free to be a fish as long as it's faithful to its design. And as a fish is designed for water, it's only going to flourish. It's only going to live to the depth in which it stays in the tank. When you think about how God created each and every one of you, God, you were created by God and for God, and you will only be as free to the degree that you find yourself in God. God is your habitat. Relationship with God is where each and every one of us belong. And so when God gives his law, in a sense, he's kind of putting the aquarium in place, saying this is how the people of Israel are to relate to me. This is how the people of Israel are to obey me and, and, and flourish in the land. And it's this idea of saying, look, the people of Israel would only flourish as long as they were faithful to what God redeemed them for. And God redeemed them to be in relationship with him. And the reality is God redeems all of his people to be in relationship with himself. And when we find ourselves in relationship with God, that's where freedom can actually happen. That's what you were designed for. But then the question is, well, how do you get there? How does the law lead us to that type of freedom? How does the law kind of put us in that place so that we can find ourselves in the habitat of God, so to speak? Well, I'll give you four quick ways. When you consider the Ten Commandments, I'll just give you these. These, these are big headings, but um, I'll just, these are handles for you to take and to hopefully use as you continue reading the Bible and thinking about God's love in your life. The first handle is this. The law serves God's love. The law serves the purposes of love in our lives. There's a reason why when Jesus is having a conversation with a religious guy in the Gospels, this guy walks up to him and says, hey, what's the most important commandment? If I'm going to obey just one, which one should it be? And Jesus responded to the guy, and he says, well, the, the answer to that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. But the second is just as important. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus then took all of God's law, and he summarized it in the language of love saying, I want you to love God completely and love people compassionately. And there's a lot of people who like to take that paradigm, love God, love people, and apply it to the Ten Commandments. And so they kind of divide up the first four commandments as what it looks like to love God, and the last six to showing us what it looks like to love people. Now, I don't think those categories are all that needed because the reality is it all goes together. If you love God, you're going to love people. And the only way you can really love people is if you're loving God. It's a symbiotic relationship. And so Jesus summarizes the law in the language of love, saying love God completely, love people compassionately. And this is where we begin to see how the law serves the purposes of, of love uh, for God's people. When you think back to the people of Israel, everything that God will command of them here in Exodus 20 and in the next two or three chapters, on up to Exodus chapter 24, was radically different than any other people group that was surrounding Israel at that time. And each one of these commands were designed to enhance love in practical and particular ways for everybody who was a part of the community. And a lot of these commands, all of these commands were revolutionary and radical. I'll give you a few examples. Take sex, for example. 
When God drops his law on the people of Israel, do you understand that when he says that adultery is a sin, that the people of Israel became the first people group on the planet, it seems, from all of our studies and all that we can tell from antiquity, the first people group on the planet that said, that, said that adultery was a sin, not just, for the man, not just for the woman, but for the man as well. And so that law was designed by God, and the way it was implemented in Israel was to lift women up and to elevate them in the community, a place that they were not... Uh, uh, a place in the community that they did not hold in many other nations and many other people groups around the world in that day. You think about money and wealth. Most every people group on the planet outside of Israel, if a family left their inheritance or their fortune to their kids, it would always go to the male children, but the law of God made it a way for the women of Israel to receive their, to receive their family's fortune and their inheritance too. Once again, God's law elevating women in the nation of Israel in comparison and in contrast with all the other nations in the Old Testament. It's a remarkable display of God's love for his people. But then you think about uh, power. You think about aliens and, and strangers who were just wandering through and they'd find themselves in the nation of Israel. That aliens and racial outsiders, according to the scriptures, according to God's law, they were to be taken in and given rights and privileges. They weren't to be treated as second-class citizens. They were to be endowed with dignity and treated as such. God's law was serving the purposes of love in the nation of Israel, giving the nation practical handles of thinking, okay, what does love look like? Well, it looks like taking care of each other. It looks like respecting women. It looks like caring for each other in all of these practical, tangible ways. The law of God serves love. Now, every time you fall in love with someone, you know you're, you tend to search out what pleases them and you decide to do what pleases them because you're falling in love with someone. When I met my wife, Kim, back in 2004, I learned that she loved McGriddles. And the only person I know in the world who loves McGriddles from McDonald's. And so when I discovered that about her heart and that that brings delight to her, I wanted to do that. So I would go to McDonald's early in the morning and I would get McGriddles. I'd meet her at her car every now and then before she goes to class and I'd have a bag there to give her. And she would take it and she would delight in it. It would bring joy to her heart. Well, every time you fall in love with another person, you're going to look out and search out what brings them delight, what brings them joy, and you're going to try to do it. Well, when it comes to how the law of God should operate in our lives, as you fall in love with a God who redeems you by his grace, you're going to, you don't have to look very far to discover what delights his heart. You look to his commands, you look to his rules, you look to the ways that he articulates his purposes and his plan and his will for people so that you can figure out, okay, uh, so loving my neighbor is a way for me to love God, then I want to love my neighbor. And if loving my neighbor honors my God, then I want to love my neighbor. And you begin to search out practical ways in, to show love to God and to show love to other people. God's law kind of colors that picture in for us. But not only does his law serve love, number two, the law reveals God. One of the things about the Ten Commandments, if you read through these, every one of these commands reveals something about who God is and what God is like. Let me give you just kind of a rundown of these commands real quick, just so you can get a picture of how these commands, how God's law reveals God's character. You look at verse 3, and we're told, do not have other gods besides me. What does that tell us about who God is and what God is like? Does it tell us that he's kind of a prude or does that tell us he wants what's best for us? If he says, do not have any other gods besides me, I believe that that command reminds us that God is really good and he's gonna be a better God to us and for us than any other God we can look after or look out for in this world. Then you go on to the very next one, very similar thing. Do not make an idol for yourself. That is, don't take anything in creation and treat it like it's God. 
Don't make anything that is temporary ultimate in your life. If you do that, you're creating an idol for yourself, so to speak. And God commands us against that. Why? Because he's a good God who wants what's best for us. And he knows better than all of us that he is what's best for us. And if you settle for creation over the creator, you're going to sell yourself short. You're going to stumble and bumble through this life. And in the end, you're going to be left disappointed. You're going to be left dissatisfied. I, I played golf not too long ago with a guy by the name of Brad Johnson. Brad Johnson is a Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in, I think, 2002. They won, that, they won the Super Bowl, and he quarterbacked their team through it. Had a long career in the NFL, a, a decent career by all standards. And, and I was playing with him on the course, and we got into a conversation about this. And, and he began to talk about how he kind of idolized football that he looked to football to kind of give him joy, to give him satisfaction, to give him everything that he thought he wanted, and in some ways he thought that football had delivered. But by the time he was retired, he was so beaten up and broken physically that he discovered that football, in a sense, betrayed him. And even as we were talking on the golf course that day, it was kind of obvious to the eye because he could barely stand up straight. He was kind of limping around the course. He couldn't really grip the club because of the the arthritis in his hands and in his joints and swing the club very fluidly and nicely. And we began to discover, and I, I pointed out, I said, well, that tends to be the case for all of us. Anytime we idolize anything in creation above the creator, eventually the creation is going to betray us and football betrayed you, other things have betrayed me, that's why I want, to, I want God to be elevated in my mind and in my life and my affections because the only one who will never betray me and never let me down is the God who made me and the God who sent Jesus to die for me. And so this is what God's commands is communicating. He's not saying this to be mean. He's not saying this to restrict our freedom. He's saying, look, I want you to have what's best, and I am what's best for you. Then he goes on, and we'll move through these quickly. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Why is that? Because God is holy. Much of God's law communicates the holiness of God, that he is set apart, that he is separate, that he is distinct, that he is to be feared in many ways. In fact, the people of Israel wouldn't even say the Lord's name out loud because they revered it with such sacredness and such holiness. Number eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, reminding us that God is sovereign over all the events of daily life, that God isn't someone that we just kind of fit into our lives, but he is sovereign over all of our lives, and we should respect him as such. Then it goes on, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Now behind this command, I believe, is the revelation that God is the ultimate authority in our lives, that he is the ultimate father and mother to us. And just as Israel would learn how to honor their mothers and their fathers in Israel as they were raised up in light of all that God is speaking, they would learn to honor God above all else and to trust God, recognizing that he's the, he's a, the ultimate parent. Verse 13, do not murder, meaning God is all about life. God doesn't want us killing each other. Why? Because he creates life. He sustains life. He's for life in every situation. Verse 14, do not commit adultery. Why is that? Well, because God is a God who's faithful and pure, and he's a God of joyful intimacy, and he knows that intimacy and responsibility should always go together. And so he says, look, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Why is that? Well, because God is our provider, and he's going to give us everything that we need. So we don't have to steal, and we don't have to scheme. We don't have to fend for ourselves in this world. You look at the next one. Do not give false testimony, revealing that our God is a God of truth. He doesn't lie to us. He tells us everything we need to know about whatever he deems important. 
So you get into 1 John and you read God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what it's getting after, that God is truthful, that God is trustworthy, he's honest. Do not give false testimony. Sorry, do not lie. Next one, verse, uh, the last one there, verse 17, 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. In other words, don't be jealous. Don't often, always look over the fence at what everybody else has and thinks, okay, well, they have that. God must love them more. That's not true. God tells us not to covet. Why? Because he wants us to learn that he is a trustworthy God. And that contentment with him can be cultivated no matter where we are in life. Whether we have a lot or we have little, we can still have God. And ultimately, that's what's most important. So the law reveals God's character. Every time you read a command, every time you read a rule, you should ask yourself, what does this tell me about who God is and about what God is like? What God is like? Essentially, what the law is, it's an expression of God's character. And what that means is, all of a sudden, sin becomes really, really personal. If the law is an expression of God's character, then every time we break God's law, we're not just breaking a command, we're betraying his character. We're betraying his heart. Understanding that helps us to make sense of all the times in the Bible where sin is personalized. And God tells people, sinners, just like you and me, hey, look, you have sinned against me. He doesn't say, yeah, you broke my rule, this cold rule that's detached from who I am. No, he's saying you sinned against me. Why? Because the law is an expression of God's character. And every time we break his law, we're betraying his heart. We're not believing that he is good. We're not believing that he is trustworthy. We're not believing that he's right in all of his ways. That's what sin is. But as you read through these dynamics, the law reveals God. You also, no doubt, you read this and you can't help but thinking, oh my, I broke three of these before I even showed up at church this afternoon. And there's a sense in which if that's how your heart's responding, that's how it should respond. Because when you read the law, not only does it reveal God, but it does expose us. The law is designed to show us how far short we fall of God's glory, how far short we fall of his standards and of his ways, how often we betray his character. The law exposes us. Now you think about that and you come back to these Ten Commandments. And if these Ten Commandments kind of reveal God's character in nuanced ways, understand that there's another way of reading these Ten Commandments to say, well, these, these rules reveal the perfect human being. That if you want to know what the perfect human being looks like, you read through the Ten Commandments and you start putting it together. Don't worry, you don't have to do the work. I did it for you. This is what we could say about the perfect human being in light of the law. A perfect human being is always a single-minded, God-satisfied individual who never loses his first love. That's command number one, right? Command number, commandment number two, a perfect human being always has pure and exalted thoughts of God. They never twiddle God down to size. Commandment number three, a perfect human being always uses his words to communicate serious delight in God. He's never flippant. Number four, a perfect human being always honors God by manipulating weekly schedules to make God central. They're never trying to fit God in. Command number five, a perfect human being overflows with gratitude towards parents and towards those who teach them, never thinking like we're self-made hyper-individuals. Command number six, a perfect human being is always breathing life into others around them. They're never high maintenance. Commandment number seven, a perfect human being always reveres the institution of marriage and never violates the sacred boundary of sexual intimacy. Commandment number eight, a perfect human being always looks for opportunities to help others. They never say me first. Number nine, a perfect human being always defends others' reputations. They, they never gossip, they never slander. And then number 10, a perfect human being is always content with the life that God gives us. 
And when other people succeed, we want to rejoice in that. This is the law of God and how it exposes us because God's law reveals, in a sense, a perfect human being. Another way of saying it, God's law shows us Jesus from 10 different angles. There's never been a person to ever journey through this world loving God completely and loving people compassionately, perfectly. The only one to ever do it was Jesus. And so when you read through God's law, you should be Start thinking about Jesus because he is the perfect human being and the Ten Commandments, in a sense, show us Jesus from ten different angles. And this really helps us out because you might read these Ten Commandments and think, okay, well, I've never murdered someone, I'm all right. I've never really committed adultery, so I'm all, I'm all right. But then you turn your attention to Jesus in the Gospels and what happens? When Jesus steps onto the scene in the Gospels, he doesn't, he doesn't make things easier for us. In fact, this is one of the things that I think we miss about Jesus. Jesus is actually kind of hard on us a lot of times. There's a reason why Jesus would say, hey, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I'm telling you the problem's deeper than that. He says, not only is it cool for you not to literally kill someone, I want you to think about how your heart responds to the people around you. And if you've ever harbored anger and resentment and bitterness towards another human being, you have broken that command. Jesus tells us that. He would tell us, look, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I want you to know the problem is much deeper than that. It's not enough that you haven't hooked up with someone, not your spouse. What matters is in your heart, you have no doubt looked at other human beings lustfully. And Jesus says that's where the problem lies. It's in the heart. So don't just externalize the law. You have to internalize the pressure of the law and letting the law expose you. Because if you don't let the law expose you, the law is never going to lead you where it wants to lead you. And this brings us to the fourth handle I want to give you tonight. Not only does the law expose us, but the law is intended to drive us to Jesus. This is why we want to read the law. This is why we want to be honest about what God commands. Not because we have to live up to those, but because those commands are why we need Jesus. Because we can't carry the weight of God's law. We can't do the things that God requires of us. We're not there. This is why when Jesus steps onto the scene in the the Gospel of Matthew, he says, look, I've not come into the world to abolish the law. I've not come to put it aside. I've not come to erase it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to live the life that you could never live. That's why Jesus did all the things that he did. And so when we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus because we're imperfect. We come to Jesus because we're sinners. We come to Jesus because we're hopeless and helpless without him. And so we read the law to be driven to Jesus. We don't read the law so that we can say, okay, how can I be a good person? Because being a Christian isn't about being a good person. We don't read the law and say, okay, how can I better my life? We don't read the law for that reason because the law isn't ultimately about bettering your life. We read the law so that we might run to Jesus, recognizing our need for the Savior and recognizing that when he went to the cross, he went to the cross for all of us. It's a remarkable thing, but you might be hearing that and think, well, Andrew, you just, you're just kind of, you're talking about Jesus, but you're dealing with Exodus chapter 20. How do I know that that's really why Jesus came into play? How do I know that God really wanted the law to drive us to Jesus? Can, can you show that anywhere in the book of Exodus? And if you have that question, let me invite you to turn over in your Bibles just a couple of pages to Exodus chapter 24, because there's an interesting moment here in Exodus chapter 24, right after God gives the law to his people, The people start responding, and I want you to hear what goes down right after they hear all this. Verse 7, 
He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud, that is the law, to the people. And they responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. That's cute, isn't it? We will do and obey all that he says. They're kind of in that camp high moment where they're thinking, oh yeah, I can do everything God wants me to do. I'm good. We're going to fulfill it all. And so it's a real cute moment where they say this, but they don't stand a chance. And you know this because look at what happens in verse 8. Verse 8, a moment after they say, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. It says, Moses then took blood and he splattered it on the people. Blood from a sacrifice that was made not long before this moment. And he splatters the people with this blood, dramatizing what God is ultimately going after. Dramatizing what the law is designed to prep us for. And he would say, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the relationship between you and me. This is where, what it's founded upon. That the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. And then in verse 9, Moses and all the leaders go up the mountain to meet with God. And look at verse 11. God did not harm the Israelites. Although they, come, they walked up the mountain, they weren't perfect in that moment, but they were covered by the blood, weren't they? So they walk up the mountain, and then it says they saw God, they interacted with God. It's all metaphorical language. And it says they ate and drank with him. They feasted with God. They communed with God. They fellowshiped with God. God took them in and treasured them because they were covered by the blood, not because they had fulfilled God's law up to that point. And so you hold that in your mind and you get to the Gospels and what happens. There's a moment when Jesus goes into the upper room. It's the night before he would go to the cross and he rallies all of his disciples together and he takes some bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is given for you. And then he turns his attention to a cup that had some wine in it. And he says, this is the cup. And he says, this cup represents uh, the blood of the covenant, the blood of my commitment to you, the blood of what this has all been about, symbolized here in this cup. And he says, this cup is being poured out, or this blood will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the law drives us to Jesus because Jesus says to us when we feel like we don't live up to what God desires or to what God demands, Jesus looks at us and he says, don't sweat it, I've got you covered. That's why I went to the cross. I shed my blood so that you could be covered. And it was illustrated in Exodus. It was affirmed in the Gospels. And it is reiterated over and over and over again all throughout the New Testament. So that every time the church is told to do something, they're not told to do something out of fear of losing out on God. They're told to do something because God has loved them and covered them with Jesus. And that's what the word saying, look, I want you to know how well you've been loved. God loves you like crazy. He loves you like crazy. He loves you like crazy. This is what the cross is all about. Take that into your life and let it change you so that all of a sudden you know you're loved by God, you're accepted by God, you're adored by God, and you begin to live in response to that, receiving that love, not living in an effort to achieve that love or to earn that love or to gain that love. This is how God's law ultimately serves the purpose of God's love in our lives. It serves the purpose of love by, by revealing God's character and exposing how, how sinful we are. But it's good to be exposed because in our exposure, we're going to run to Jesus and find covering. And there's not a single person who's run to Jesus and never heard Jesus said, no, I don't, I don't want you. Or no, you don't measure up. Jesus has never said that to a single person who's come to him in that way. So if you've never come to Jesus, and maybe that's your reason, let me encourage you to do so. He's not going to turn you away. He's going to accept you. He's going to cover you. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to forgive you. And then he's going to help you find freedom in this world. 
Not the freedom to go and do whatever you want, but the freedom to be who God created you to be and the freedom to do what God is redeeming you to do, living a life of love where you're loving God and you're loving people and you're spending your time in this world for that purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these thoughts, Lord? I know that there are a lot, and I know there's a lot to process and consider, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. God, you say that your Holy Spirit is counselor and teacher, and and I pray that you would counsel us over these next few moments as we meditate upon these truths and as we respond to you together um, in closing tonight. And so, God, would you please draw near? Would you please speak? Would you please transform all in Jesus' name? Amen.